Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 217. We are literally coming from Gimel Tammuz yesterday, Shabbos Gimel Tammuz, which uh, I'm sure for every one of us, every Chassid, every person thinking about the Rebbe, thinking about Chassidus, thinking about all the Rabbeim, and in a sense the purpose of all of existence, which is creating a home for the divine in this world through Teda Mitzvahs, and especially through Primus HaTeda, Yefutsu Meinesach each one of us, I hope, went through our own personal introspection and came away with proper resolutions that will perpetuate Pulanim Sheches, as the expression is, a perpetual impact on our entire year for the good. As I discussed last week at length, it's a very challenging day in so many different ways, with so many questions. But at the end of the day, the most important thing of all is that it propels us. Whatever the feelings that we experience, whatever questions we have, whatever challenges we may be facing, it propels us toward movement and growth to finally perhaps do something more than we've ever done to change the status quo and to create a new world. I received many, 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 many letters and feedback from last week's episode. I'll just read one or two because I felt very gratified, even though it was a difficult topic. One person writes, literally, you, the clarity that you have and the way you presented such a complex and confusing topic left me empowered to initiate some things in my community. And I've heard from my friends as well that this was perhaps one of the best presentations on approaching Gimel Tammuz and using it as a day that motivates us to fulfill the Rebbe's prime directive, and that is to do our part in bringing the Geula. Another person writes, um, I was really avoiding this day. I tried to stay away from it because whatever we experience in the past has always been frustrating. But I decided to um, listen to your program and I have to say, the, the balanced approach of both not shying away from the challenges, and at the same time also providing some guidance and some clarity resonated with me as being the Rebbe's approach. So thank you for that. You cannot imagine what you're doing for the community and for our extended communities. There's more, and in this case, I actually did not receive critique, even though, as you know, I both read critique. Um, I guess, in a way, we are all united to want to finally end this gullus and come to a place where we can live up to what the Rebbe expected of us, make him proud as uh, he has made us proud all the years. That's the way you can phrase it. Make him proud in fulfilling the prime directive, yes, the, what he said to us, Chov Chesnis and Tav 27 years ago. And many, many of the sikh, other sikhs, starting from the first Maimon, Basilagani, Tavshin, Yud Aleph, all about what this day, this generation is about, that we are here to finish the process. And anything less is not, is lahevel lirik, as the Rebbe said. It uh, doesn't mean nothing was done. It means compared to what should be done, it's not, it's not significant. People wonder the Rebbe's words, lahevel ularik, which is very strong words, like lahevel means to not. Larik is to spit. It's like meaningless. Yet there's a medrash, and I think I mentioned it more than once, 
in Kehelis Rabbah, and the Pasuk Hevel Havolim, as Kehelis begins, Hevel, the word Hevel, all is naught. So the Medrash says there that Teira, Be'elim Hazel, Hevel Hu, Legabe Terasu Shal Mashiach. The Teira in this world is Hevel Hu, it's as naught compared to Rosh Hashem Mashiach. Think of the statement. The Teda in this world, what does that mean? The Teda that was given at Har Sinai to Moshe Rabbeinu by the Ebesh to himself. The Aseris Adibris. The entire Teda Shebiksav, the written law. The written Teda. The Teda Shebaapeh, the oral Teda. Mishneh, Gemara. Tanoim, Amaroim. Rabbonu Savaroi. The Geinim, the Rishenim, the Achreinim. Everything. That's all Teda Elam Hazar. It's all learned and taught in, this, uh, in our times. It's all Hevel compared to Teros HaShem Mashiach. Could you say such a thing? That only amplifies and points out what Teros HaShem Mashiach really is. If you thought Teros HaShem Mashiach was just a little more of the same, or even a qualitative shift or a paradigm shift, no. It's such, so beyond what we can even imagine that the whole Teda is heavily up to that. Which just gives you that the Rebbe didn't just say a word, an expression. The Rebbe, every word is ezgerechent, every word is precise. That the word saying is exactly what the Medrash says. So if you're not shooting for the Gula, you're shooting just to achieve as much as we can, as many leaders and most leaders, all leaders did throughout the generations, then a lot was achieved. But if your, your goal is the destination, you want it all, which is the Gula, Amitiz Vashlema, then... Everything is heavily compared to that. So it was a matter of what standard the Rebbe was seeking. And at the same time gave us the shlichus and said, which means we have the power to do something to actually tip the scale. Now, of course, we understand that power comes accumulatively as a non-asagaba nok, a midget that stands on the shoulders of giants of all that was done before us. And it also comes with the keiches that we were given from all the generations before us. And particularly the keiches, the powers and the, the strengths and the resources given to us by the Rebbe himself. Including the command and the call and the charge to each of us to do everything we can. That means we could do something. We could do more than something. In many ways, the whole, this whole uh, program, My Life Chassidus Applied, is a direct outgrowth of this call as I believe is all the work I try to do, the Meaningful Life Center and all that we're about, is to try to bridge and bring that chassidus to the world in a way that is palatable and accessible and applicable and relevant and can be turned into a daily blueprint for life. So from time to time, it's important to go back to the mission and the purpose of everything we do, including this program. So I thought it appropriate, as we come from Gimel Tamos, to state that. And thank you again for your participation, for listening, and most of all, for contributing. Contributing with your questions, contributing with your words of support, and contributing, yes, with your financial support. So let me announce here, it's a good opportunity. You can pose and present any question you wish. Nothing is off limits. Everything is addressed, even the things that nobody else wants to talk about, to the best of our ability, to the best of my ability, to do research, try to find sources, direct sources or indirect sources, and that is to go to MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. You have a forum there, completely anonymous, completely confidential. We have no idea where it comes from because it's not even an email, it's a, a forum. If you do want a response and you want to receive either material or you want something directed to you, you have to give us your email address, so please include it in whatever you write in that box. There you'll also find the, the growing array of resources 
around my life, Chassidus Applied. First of all, all previous episodes are all available, all free of charge. And there's now 216 episodes, which would be a little over 216 hours because the class, these programs have been a little more than an hour, an hour and a quarter. And they're all time-stamped. So when you go to the actual video, many of you ask, Can I, do I have to listen to an hour before I get to where I want to get to? No, just go to the YouTube version because YouTube has this tool. We don't have the ability to have that tool yet. And everything is time-stamped and indexed. So you can just choose the topic and you don't even have to search for the timestamp. You just click there. It takes you straight to that section of the video that you want to listen to. It can also be downloaded as, um, as a podcast and you can listen to it at your own leisure and your own, your own convenience. Um, I would also mention that all the essays are there, the four years of essay contests. There's hundreds and hundreds of essays doing exactly the same thing, applying an idea of chassidus to a contemporary issue or challenge. And finally, as I said, support is needed on all levels besides your participation and your questions, which is critical. Also, your financial support, please consider dedicating a program or a series of programs to a loved one, memory of a loved one, or birthday, or graduation, or any other significant day, or bichlal, always a good thing to do. And we survive on your support, especially this program, completely free, but a lot of work goes into it, and we definitely can use and encourage you to help us in any possible way with your generosity. God will bless you in kind, the merit of your support that helps so many people actually taking chassidus and making it a viable force in their personal lives. With that, let us go to the topics at hand. We always begin with something timely. I began with Gimel Tamas. I want to do one follow-up regarding Gimel Tamas because I received quite a few questions. Most of the questions usually come in writing, but sometimes I do get them orally, either passed on to me or people beat me and ask me the question. So here's something. Someone asked the question regarding... This was regarding a follow-up to last week's program. Last week's was dedicated. It was a special Gimel Tamas edition. So we spoke about many matters related to Gimel Tamas, and one of them was the oil. So somebody wrote the following. Spending Shabbos at the oil. Rabbi Jacobson, I understand that we go to the oil to ask the Rebbe for his brachas. What I don't understand is the idea that we spend Shabbos at the oil. The Friedrich Rebbe lived in Crown Heights for 10 years. The Rebbe had been living in Crown Heights since Chav Ches Sivan Tov Shin Aleph. 1941. And we have to travel from Crown Heights to the oil for a Shabbos to get a Fabring and a Chizuk? It makes no sense to me. And if you're a family man, to leave your family for Shabbos and spend it at the oil? I just don't understand it. I would appreciate it if you could explain it to me. Thank you. Have a good Shabbos. This was written right before Shabbos. P.S. I would find it ironic if you were spending the Shabbos at the oil. Okay. So the truth is I addressed this very directly actually researching the, the issue at hand, because we know that it says in Kisfei Arizal that the tzaddikim are not there on Shabbos and Yontif at the oil, and uh, that's why we don't go into an oil on Shabbos and Yontif. And yet you see, yes, many chassidim do spend there, or other times on Shabbos. So I am not here to go ahead and personally criticize anyone. I believe that everything has to be grounded in Teira and chassidus and halacha, and, um, because that way we're guaranteed that we just don't go off on uh, a, a, a detour or in the wrong way. And this is on all extremes, whether it's extreme one direction or extreme another direction. We don't go based on hergation. It's important to have sources. And I addressed it at length at episode 44. And I refer you to there, to go there. 
You can listen to it with sources. I went through it. There's actually some tzetlach the Rebbe about Shabbos Adoyal. And also episodes 22 and 23, 42 and 43. So I don't want to use this time because it's all there recorded. It's exactly as I said it then. So I don't want to use this time. I want to refer you to that. I will, however, say this. Um, you know, Chassidim try to do their best in connecting to the Rebbe, connecting to the Rebbe's directives, Hiraz, and so on. Unfortunately, we have a lot of politics. Politics definitely taints and affects people's judgment and affects people's interests and where they want to be around, where they don't want to be around. But Rebbe Rashab once said something interesting. He said he doesn't like people who say Pshatlach and Tanya. You know, learn Tanya, learn Tanya the way it's written and try to understand what it says. Like Pshatlach. However, he said, if it adds you to Shemayim, it adds so-called fear of God, it adds a person becoming more devoted to Hashem, to Teirah Mitzvah, he so-called overlooks it. I would take the same approach to these type of matters, even if there's no particular source. You know, if it's something that's based on a negative, it's based on hatred or based on some politics, then yes, it's a bad example for those that are young and, and learning and impressionable to see people doing things whatever they want. But if it adds in people, if there's nothing that's against a particular directive and it adds in people's Yerushalayim, you know, there are worse things that can be done. So I am not here, as I said, going to state my direct opinion. I did it all in episode 44. I, um, I just feel that, especially in our times, we need to be very, very honest and true to the original and to the sources, more than ever, because that's where the, that's the Rebbe's direction. That's when we're going on Eisenbrück. You're going on a solid, and a solid foundation, a solid bridge. You know that you are doing something correct. And anything that's a suffix, a doubt, no, maybe stay away from, or as I said, if you go to Yemashpia and it sounds like something it's a Rishus, possible to do, and it adds in Yerushalayim, and adds an inspiration, no. So, as I said, the details go look there, and I'm not here to explain or def- defend anyone particularly. We do know that the oil was a, is the Indian of Ishtatchus, al the Tzadikim, the Rebbe going to the oil. But yes, we also know that 770 Eastern Parkway, the place where the Rebbe said many times that the Friedrich Rebbe did his service here 10 consecutive years where he learned and he davened and he received people in Yechidis and he cried and he poured, and people poured out their souls to him. We could add to those 10 years another, um, another uh, uh, what would be from Tavshin Yud till Tavshin Nun Dalad is another 44 years. So it's a collective 54 years. And uh, that's Begashmias. So there's nothing to talk about that it's saturated through and through with, as the Rebbe, uh, Friedrich Rebbe says in his first Maimereshes, Goyim Amolek Tafresh Pei, and the Rebbe brings it in a number of places, including in the famous Sikha Vayikra Tafshim Amzayin, the Nitzchias, even of the Gashmis, of the, of the table, of the chairs, of the physical space, Kedusha Lezazim Mkema, this is the place where the Rebbe Fabreng, this is the place where Aliyas were had, this is where Ufrufnishim and Kedushim were made, and so on, that has that element of Nitzchias to it. I don't see it as a contradiction at all, one or the other. The oil has its role, and you go for a bracha, for a tefillah, and you're pouring your heart out to the Rebbe. That definitely has that. And it's not a contradiction. Just like by the Rebbe, it wasn't a contradiction, the fact that the Rebbe went to the oil twice a month and later more times a month, and still said the same thing about 770. The Rebbe knew both, both strengths. So 
Uh, I would always like to stick to the middle path. I think it's the safest path to go on. And also, especially in our times where you see people are so convinced that they have it right and no one else has and they use their propaganda and pressure, I don't see how that helps the next generation or anybody because everybody wants to know what the Rebbe said. That has the only, vali- the only real validity, not people's halgation. Everyone's entitled to their feeling, as I said, as long as it's not against a directive or halacha or chassidus. But halgation don't define a mandate. They don't define the doctrine. A hergish is a hergish. Like the Rebbe says, on Gimel Tammuz, he was asked about saying tachnun. He says, toli behergish and hergish ain't shailin. It's dependent on a hergish and a hergish you don't ask. So that is clearly a statement, a statement which is not about something that is halachic for or against. It's a shush and it's a hergish. But to build a mandate, to build a doctrine, and saying my hergish is the hergish for everybody, that's not, in my opinion, healthy nor right. It's more personality, people feeling that they know better than everybody else what is the way to connect to the Rebbe. And this is the approach that I believe is the way to go based on everything we know from the Rebbe and the Ein Deyaseh and Shavas. Again, there are the things that we know for sure that this is what needs to be done. There are things you know but not allowed to be done. And then there's the areas which are open to interpretation, are open to different application and different situations at different times. It's like saying to somebody, where should they stand in 770 when they want to pour their heart out? Should they stand here or stand here? And sometimes somebody wants to stand near the Rebbe's room, someone wants to stand downstairs in 770, somebody wants to go to the oil. I mean, how do we regulate this exactly? They all have their power, and, and, and therefore should all be utilized, and it doesn't have to be turned into a black and white, <coughs> excuse me, dogmatic approach. It could all be done in that beautiful way. In Halavai, we have that attitude and respect for each other, and that itself... Agdus, we know, is the biggest force that brings the Geula and that brings and fulfills the Rebbe's Ratzin and gives the Nachas to the Avinu Shabbat and Avinu Malkeinu and Avinu the Rebbe as our father, which is the idea of Agdus among the Chassidim, which will lead us to the Geula. With that, let us go to, okay, so I covered that. Um, there was also a follow-up about how does the Rebbe answer us today? So let me address that. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. With regard to some of the questions mentioned in your previous episode of how the Rebbe answers us today, why not bring up what the Rebbe spoke on Mitzoy Shabbos Parshas Truma Tovshim Emches? Didn't the Rebbe clearly imply that people need to seek the psak of three chsidah shirabonim for any question they would ask the Rebbe? Yes. Okay, thank you for pointing that out. There's definitely that directive of that Mitzoy Shabbos Sicha where... Um, so this was obviously following Tavshim Memches, Tavshim Chav Beishvat, where the Rebbe says exactly what, you know, a very sad sikh on one hand, but the Rebbe gave directives of going to Rabbonim, the Chesidish Rabbonim in every community. You can look up that sikh and that's correct. Together with Asel Kharav, together with other directives regarding medical matters, regarding other matters, we do have directives how to address issues as the Rebbe spoke in that sikh. So I accept that. And it is ultimately going to Yerov, going to the Rav of community, going to three of the Shirabanim. And that's good for the record to add that point as well. There are some other follow-ups on other points, but I will address them later in the program. I will now go back to the beginning. So we've got a little different order due to the Gimel Tammuz shift. And we will begin with, as I always do, this week's Pasha's Chukas. So Gimel Tammuz, of course, tough 24 years ago, was Machoy Shabbos. It was actually after Mitzvah Shabbos, it was already uh, Sunday, late, it was Sunday morning, early mornings, after midnight. 
the, but it was it was following Mitzvah Shabbos Pasha Kedach, and I've pointed out a number of times, and I'm sure other Chassidim have as well. Kedach was challenged the very concept of a Rebbe. Lama Tisnasu, Madua Tisnasu. Why are you lifting yourself up? The entire community is holy. He challenged the concept of a Rebbe. And as the Rebbe speaks, speaks about Chassidus in different Tzichas, based on different Maimor Chassidus, that Kedach was challenging the very concept of the Mamutza Machaber of a Rebbe because he saw, one of the explanations, because he saw that in Pasha the Meraglim, which came in last, the Pasha before, they were the opposite. They wanted to stay in the Midbar because of its Ruchnis and didn't want to have to deal with a physical world. And the Kavon is Dira B'Takhtenim. So Kedach now saying that, Dira B'Takhtenim. Dira B'Takhtenim. So every person is able to make a Dira B'Takhtenim. Why do we need to rely on the more spiritual leaders? But his mistake was that you need both. You need to enter this world, but you need to have the strength that comes from our Rebbe, from Moshe Rabbeinu of a generation. So you need both. As explained in a number of tzichas. But that leads down to Pasha Chukas. Just like Kedach challenged the of a Rebbe, Gimel Tamas, you can say for many challenges the concept of a Rebbe. And yet we learn and dig deeper to understand the value and importance of a Rebbe. And then comes Pasha Chukas, which also touches what? Touches upon the issue of death. This is the ordinance. This is the supra-rational law of the Teireh. Mitzvah of Pora Aduma. And what is the story? The story is that Meshach Rabbeinu was being shown by the Ebishter the different purifications for the different impurifications. The Medr says. And uh, when it came to Tumas Mes, it says, Neskarkam upon of Meshach's face became green, yellow, different ways it's interpreted. He became very disturbed. And he said, How will this impurity of death be cleansed? Be purified. And Hashem then says, wherever it says this, the Medr says there are different places where in Iskasha Moshe, Moshe had a difficulty about the Meneda, about the Mishkin, about Matbeyashalesh, about the Zayutnu, the Machsas Hashekel. There are many different areas. There's more Shrotzim and there's more. And they say, Zayitnu or Zayitnu or This is the Chukas I'm pointing, this is how I'm answering your question. You'll make a take a paraduma, a red heifer, and you'll bring it as an offering. And you'll take the ashes that are remains from after burning the red heifer on the Mizbeach. Then you will take actually Chutzlamachne, the red heifer, and you will take the ashes and mix it with Mayim Chaim. And then you'll sprinkle that, and that will be the purification. And Moshe understood. So the big question is God gives and God takes. He sees that Hashem is telling him how to purify from every different type of impurity. Why suddenly comes to Misa? The same God that gives life, takes life, can give and, and, and takes life, yes, there's an impurity, can give us the tools how to uh, purify. Why was he disturbed? So the Rebbe in the Shleishim, Pashabas Pasha Kisisa Tovshim Memches, 30 days, close to 30 days, was Pasha Pora. We read Pasha Pora, we read, of course, in Pasha Chukas Pasha Pora on the regular schedule. But, but the four special Pashas that are read between Rosh Chedesh and Pesach, basically. So you read Pasha Shkolim, you read Pasha Zocher, you read Pasha Pora and Pasha Chedesh. Uh, 
So Pasha is part of the, the opening section of Chukas is read there as well. And there the Rebbe spoke and said, so what disturbed Meish Rabbeinu? Meish Rabbeinu was Chachmet de Gdusha. He understood all the answers. And understood that even though death, every descent brings in a greater ascent. And even though death on the outside can be, can be very painful and a disconnect, yet at the same time, there's a deeper meaning behind everything. So what was so disturbing to him? Mele, every person, a regular person is disturbed. But why Meish? And the answer is because we're pale mamish. All this is in the mind. You can see that I was speaking about himself. All this is in the mind. The mind understands. But when you're faced with death, the hefsik, even a hefsik cotton, and even though you understand the nisham is nitzchi, is eternal and goes on, but the mere separation, the ene basar even, is a, it, is a it's terribly disturbing thing because Hashem Echad is one God. And an Hashem should always be together with its body. Why should it even separate for one second? When you're connected to God, you're connected to life. So if that life is some moment, you see some pause, some interruption, that's extremely skarkam upon him. He began to tremble, he was disturbed. And the Ebishter then gave him the antidote. So it's not like every other impurity. Every other impurity, good, this impurity, here's a correct, but here's an impurity that signifies a period, a separation between Achdus. And Moshe, of course, empathized with that. It wasn't just for him an intellectual concept. He felt it in his heart. And that's why you see, you could say, Mele, God forbid, no one should ever know. But a person passes away, and you see children sit Shiva. Everyone should have Arichus Yom Vishanam Tevis, but it has happened. You could say, fine, Anoshim Karkenu, people like us, we don't understand, we don't see the Ruchniyas, we don't see the Neshama. But a Tzadik, a Tzadik Gomer, Knows that sees the neshama. He's a neshama dika person. We talk about chayet sadikim is chayim not chayim sarim a flesh chayim ruchim ave v'yira and amuna. Even in their lifetimes, even when they're neshama beguf. So why do they sit shiva? Why do they cry? They don't are not connected to the neshama of their loved one, of the rebbetzin, of a parent. Their answer is because even by tzadikim gemurim, there's still that hefsek. There's something not the way it was. So they may be able to connect the neshama and they may be able to, to, uh, to bond with it and may be able to see it, but there's still something that in Elam Haza that is disconnect. For most of us, it's very, very blatant. But even for a Rebbe, he lives also in this world and he's also part of our lives. And that's what disturbs that it has to go through. Why does it have to go through such a transition? Why can't it just continue on without a hefzik into Chaim Nitzchim, into eternal life? And what's the answer of Poraduma? Poraduma's answer, so tzaka chuka, chuka chakakti gzeri meaning there's no explanation. What does a red heifer and ash and water have to do with impurity? The chuka. Like Rashi says, this is the chuka this is the chuka that the nations of the world challenge and mock us because it doesn't have any basis in seich. Mishpotim illogical laws. Edis are commemorative laws, they make sense. But this doesn't make any sense. And yet Chassidus goes and explains, just like the Rambam writes, to say, Fichos Tmura and Fichos Me'ila, that you have to find the Yashir Asadeus, that everything in Teir, even the things that seem to be Chuk, also have lessons in our lives. So comes Chassidus, look in the Kut Teir in this week's Pasha, and you see, what's the connection? Chukas, what's the key to the purification? Water and ash. 
fire and water. The key to life is Ratzi Veshuv. All life energy flows through a Ratzi Veshuv process. Ratzi is a yearning, Shuv is a return. Tension and resolution, the heartbeat. If you see a cardiogram, expansion, contraction. Breathing, exhale, inhale, a Ratzi Veshuv double movement. That's why you see the symbol for electricity is like a lightning bolt. A positive and negative. That's like a pump. In and out. So Rotze is symbolized by Eish, uh, fire. Fire goes up. Shuv is symbolized by Mayim, which go, draws down. Shuv. For life to be consistent and life energy to flow, it says in Chesidus, Rotze Chayis, Rotze not just here in the, the heartbeat and the breath, as I just mentioned. But in all Ishtalshlis, it's a Rotze and Shuv, everything is going Rotze, the flow in, contraction, expansion. Expansion, contraction. It flows, then it goes, yearns back up, and then it flows. And you need that balance constantly. On a higher level, Kabbalah, Siddhis calls it moti vile moti. It touches and doesn't touch. And that's the process of life. So what's the tikkun for death? Death is a hefzik in the Ratzi Vishuv. The Ratzi Vishuv is a constant flow, ebb and flow, back and forth. If when there's death, what happens is the flow stops. You see the Ratzi without a Shuv or a Shuv without a Ratzi. Most likely a Ratzi without a Shuv. So how do you repair that? You repair that in Aravedah by reconnecting to the Asian Mayim, as the Alter Rebbe says in Lukuta Teda. And explains that all Teda Mitzvahs is based on Ratzi Vishuv. Ava, Yira. Yira is a Ratzi, Ava is a Shuv. Ava is like Mayim, and Yira is like, uh, is like, uh, is like Ish. In Av itself, you have Av Kadishpiesh, you have Av Kamayim. Bottom line is we need both. We need to reach upward, to draw down, to reach upward and draw down into ourselves, integrate that energy. And that's the life force. Like we do when we breathe. You breathe in, you exhale. You inhale, and exhale. You're always drawing down new energy, internalizing it, expelling that and then starts a new flow, getting a new state of energy. And it's an ongoing process. That's how we do it. So in our personal lives, when we have that healthy measure of angst, at the same time we also have resolution, that's how we come alive again. People have too much peacefulness, meaning too much contentment. They're just happy, satisfied, never are challenged. Don't feel a measure of angst, a little push to be driven upward are living in a very dead way. People who have too much angst to the point of anxiety don't have it integrated, so they don't have peace of mind. The harmony is based on a perfect balance between Ratzin and Shuv. And when we master that balance in our personal lives, in our relationships, in our general lives, our communal lives, in all our religious lives, in our Torah lives, every way possible, that's how we prepare the world for that type of peace as well. And ultimately, Mashiach and Gula is also that type of harmony. Golis is extremes. And that's why there's death after Chetet Sadas, because there was a cutoff. And when we correct it through the Bir HaElam, through the refinement of this world, and the refinement of this world, what we do is we're rebalancing the Ratzi Veshuv, which in turn eradicates the impurity and the toxins that death brings into existence. Physical death and spiritual death. And ultimately, we zeche to Tchis HaMesim, which is Tchis HaMesim again, Baruchnis, and especially Begashmiz, Nesham is Begufim again, this time eternally. So this is a lesson from Chukas in an applied way. And with that, 
Let's go to a few um, specific questions. Chassidus um, applied to Chukas, I already also discussed cross-referencing to episode 72 and 122. 122, 72, 122. Okay, my friends, let us now go to another question. Supporting local, local Moises versus supporting Shluchim. What takes precedence, supporting local Moises or supporting Shluchim? Rabbi Jacobson, I've lived in Kranites for a number of years. It's nothing new that many Shluchim, new and seasoned, as well as local Moises whose raison d'etre is to support and provide services for Shluchim worldwide, rely somewhat on donations from local Lubavitch businessmen who feel for the cause. Lately, I've been hearing people saying things like, I only support local institutions. Why don't the Shluchim fundraise from their own communities? When did it become my responsibility? And so on. Must we really feel responsible to support Shluchim and their supporting Moises? Don't we have an obligation and priority towards the local Moises? Okay. Very good question. And I'm always surprised. I always think every question has been asked. But clearly, as long as life exists, there's always going to be questions and new questions. And even though I did speak about something related, about giving tzedakah and how you prioritize, because it's a good question. If you broaden the question, it's in general a question. When there's a lot of people coming to you for tzedakah and there's a lot of good causes, how do you determine? Whoever comes first, how does one determine how to give tzedakah and how to allocate tzedakah? Is there a logic to it? So we know the famous story of Rabnochem Chernobyl, what sometimes someone, someone came to him and gave him 10,000 ruble. He put it in his drawer. It was meant to be distributed, of course, to tzedakah. A woman comes in a little later. She's a poor woman, doesn't have a, an almana. She has to marry off her daughter. How much you need? 10,000 rubles. So Rabbi Nachum right away said, no, here it is. But then he had a second thought that perhaps maybe it should be given a different way. So he said, you know what? Let me reflect on it and come back tomorrow. He tells the woman. And as he's reflecting, he has a different thought. Why give all 10,000 to one person? Maybe you should break it down to smaller amounts and allocate it and distribute it to a few people so a few people benefit. But then again, she did come and she needs it. Back and forth. The next day, she comes back. He hasn't resolved the issue. Come back another day. Then, what's going on here? But Payal is still sitting in his drawer. No one getting it. So it cannot be both Sfaris are coming from the Nefesh of the Kis. So he starts saying, so how do I determine which one is the right one, which is not? So then he said to himself, of course, it's Poshet. My first thought was to give it to her. That's definitely from Nefesh of the Kis. The Nefesh Abamis would never come up with something like that. However, the Nefesh Abamis was about to give it. Now, how do you explain Nefesh Abamis by a tzaddik? Everyone bedakus. But the, the other side saw I was about to give it. So couldn't tell me, take the money for yourself or don't give it away. Because that I wouldn't do. So what it does is try to replace one mitzvah with another mitzvah. Wait, giving it to one person, give it to a bunch of people. The kavana was not to give it. The kavana was to paralyze me from not making a decision. That's because that's the conclusion. That second thought caused me not to do anything. And I can go on debate this forever. So he called her back and gave her the 10,000 rupees. So that's one lesson in this approach that you have to always remember that there's always going to be a voice that's going to try to challenge and it's going to challenge it with holy reasons. Why give to this, not to that? But to answer the question in a... So I spoke about this in episode 169. Some details. I'm going to talk about, I guess, touch a few other details that were not spoken about then. It's a very good question. 
But I think the question has to be broadened in general. It's not just about shluchim and local Moses. Because everyone agrees these are all good causes. Because if it's not a good cause, there's nothing to talk about. Then there's no debate. So we're talking about good causes. One is local, and one is not local. It's a shliach in a particular city. So I would just give a few guidelines, I think, to be able to put it into context. I don't know if there's a black and white answer to this question. It could very well be, maybe the first one that Taka came, or whatever the first thought was, like the story of Abnochim. It could also be, there's a concept of Bamokim Shalibe Chafetz. To give Zdokeh in matters that you have a particular interest. Some people, for example, gravitate to education. Some to children. Some to needy cases. Some to your Futsamanesach some to directly to the Rebbe's direct mazdas and direct, direct pu'ulas. The truth is they're all the Rebbe's direct pu'ulas, but you know, they're sometimes stronger. But it comes down, I recall seeing a letter from the Rebbe, actually, when it comes to this, he says that one-third should be dedicated to the Rebbe's inyan, and one-third to things that you have a particular, you gravitate to. And the third-third, I don't remember what it was. Maybe it was just a plain obligation of Zaka in general. But a component that I don't recall specifically, but again, I don't believe there's a black and white answer to this. So the, going back to the question, yes, some can argue that you know, the local community needs its support. But let's be honest. Unless you're the person that's giving the biggest amount of money, if you give $1,000 to local cause and you give $1,000 to a shliach that comes to you, or to a mesa that helps a shliach, it's not, not going to make and break the tzedakahs of, of either of them. So it could very well be the question itself may be just a way to make a bissel kaltkite, like the story of Rab Nochem, to not be passionate about giving. So instead of saying, don't give to this, this, you need to deal with the local institutions. But on the other hand, there is a good legitimate, legitimate reason that the means the poor people in your city precede other things is a din. Because they are close by and you're responsible. That also has to be taken into the equation. I would say if somebody has this question and they feel good about giving to both, so split it. You want to split it and feel a little more, give more local because whatever reason, I see no problem with that. The main thing is to give. And the main thing is to focus on a key of the thing. Not just saying, I'm not giving because someone else says you should go collect in your own place. That's not the, the reason. The reason is you only have that much money. You can't give it to 20 places. So you're separating, you're splitting it and allocating it as you see fit. Now, it would always help to talk to a mashpia, to talk to an objective party, because they can help make a good decision that's not based on an emotional reason or prejudice, and an objective decision. But that's the approach I would take regarding this particular question. Okay. So yes, the answer is we should feel responsible to support every good cause, especially shluchim, the Rebbe shluchim, um, and uh, for the obvious reasons. Uh, you know, I see recently new shluchim going out. I see they send letters to everybody in the community here, trying their best to get from everyone. I see no reason if a person feels this is a way to be mishtatim from shluchim shluchim kamesei, the Rebbe the Rebbe's tired of shluchim, but to suggest there aren't other zdokas, there are other zdokas, and again, I do not see one as being priority to the other, really comes down to how you feel about it. And do not let one f- factor determine it all. The easy solution, as I said, is allocating it as you see fit. Good. With that, let us go to another question completely unrelated. Um, I, I, the question is about mother. Here we are. 
How do I improve my, race, my relationship with my mother? I can't believe I didn't discuss it. I actually looked it up to see. And I definitely discussed relationships with parents and all the challenges, both whether it's healthy parents or I remember talking about honoring parents who don't seem to deserve honor. So there are discussions on parenting, parents and so on. But I don't recall particularly mother. So I will address this issue. And now the, que- the problem is that the question is too broad. What does it mean how to improve my relationship? Does it mean your relationship is excellent? You want to make it even better? Does it mean your relationship is average and you want it to be better? Does it mean that it's terrible and you want it to be better? So all these are different answers based on the circumstances. And as much as I don't like to say this, it's case by case because you have to know the details. But with that said, that doesn't mean there aren't some guidelines. Let's start with a story with the Rebbe. It's a story I bring in my book, Toward a Meaningful Life. I believe it's on the chapter on childhood or, uh, or family, family maybe. And the story goes that there was a young woman by Yechidus, by the Rebbe, and she's speaking about the difficulties she has with the relationship with her mother and doesn't want to talk to her. Something happened, some rift. And the Rebbe expressed himself, I don't know the full context, but what I heard was he said, do you know what I would do to be able to speak to my mother even once more? And we know the Rebbe's connection to his mother, first of all, and the unbelievable, awesome care. Despite the busyness of the Rebbe's day, every day would go see his mother, give her pour some tea, and in general, you see the, the way the Rebbe was machabed, people who did even one small thing for his mother, especially for his father, the Rebbe was not able to be machabed for so many years. And uh, so the lesson from that is tremendous. What the Rebbe is saying to her is that you don't underestimate, don't ever take for granted a mother that's alive, that you're able to access. Now, the Rebbe understood, of course, there's situations where there's dysfunctionality where sometimes you have to be out of the line of fire because a mother can be unhealthy. And uh, obviously, I'm not, that's also not included in this question here. So there's the concept of chayecha koidmin, your life comes first, and talking to an objective party, a, a therapist, a mashpia, a doctor, a rov, and, and you establish that your mother is an unhealthy force, a toxic force that is causing damage to you, so then there's halachas around that. When a parent asks you to do something, you're supposed to do it. However, they tell you to do something that goes against what Hashem says, you don't do it because they also are obligated to listen to Hashem. You could spill, that spills over and that can extend the same thing if, the, if your parent does, says something to you to do something that's destructive to you or their presence causes destruction and that's objectively established, not just because you feel that way, then there are obviously guidelines because you need to protect your life. I'm not talking physical, emotional, psychological. You know, there are situations where a mother or father, for that matter, can be very overbearing and have a direct impact on your own mothering and your own children. So that needs to be weighed case by case. But let's assume, for argument's sake, that we can get around that. We have to do everything possible to improve our relationship with our parents. And it's one of the hardest mitzvahs, actually, because we do take our parents for granted. They've been part of our lives. They're part of our structure. They're part of our DNA. And yet we have, it's one of the cardinal mitzvahs. It's one of the Ten Commandments, the Aseris Adibris. And one of the ones, only ones that says, Laman yamecha, means it's also known to give you longer life. I discussed once at length the reasons for that. But the point being, it's a mitzvah, it's a critical mitzvah, which is so fundamental in appreciating that your parents were there for you. Your mother was there for you long before you even knew it and the sacrifices that a mother makes for a child. 
Now, again, I'm qualifying that there are extenuating circumstances. Obviously, that has to be taken into account. So the first thing I would say, improve relationship, sit down, think about it. See, maybe there's some pettiness. Maybe there's some arrogance, a little pride, or something that you just decided to carry a grudge against your mother. Even if there is, and, and try to clear that up in your mind and become a bigger person, a greater person. Your mother was there for you when you were not able to return anything because you were a baby. So maybe there are times you have to do some things unconditionally, just like your mother was unconditional love to you. Even if you do find something that is legitimate grievance and objectively established as such, that doesn't mean, again, we, there are things we overlook. There's no question as a child, parents, our parents must have overlooked things we did. So we overlook because it's a person that loves us and we love them. If indeed there's something that you feel is a legitimate reason that you should not build a better relationship with your mother, then that must be established by an outside party because you're too, we're all prejudiced. Maybe you're wrong. Maybe you're just emotional about it. Maybe you're blinded by it. And if indeed it is, they will give guidelines where you may be able to create a boundary. And that also doesn't mean that you can't improve the relationship. Maybe improve the relationship means improve other areas and certain areas you stay away from. You don't get into arguments. You don't touch upon the softer spots or the nerve points that can happen between a parent, a mother, and a child, and so on. But do everything possible because it's a gift, and it's the greatest gift, and it's a great mitzvah, and it makes us healthier people when we have better relationship with our own mothers. It's not just for our mother that we do it. Okay. Next question. Dating. Is it okay to date and establish a home before fully dealing with my own self-esteem and dependency issues? Again, is it okay to date and establish a home before fully dealing with my own self-esteem and dependency issues? So I spoke about this in episode 195 about love if you don't have a healthy, your own attitude, should you pursue finding a love in your life and getting married and so on. I also spoke about dating related to this in episode 71 and about self-esteem in episodes 103 and 111. I spoke about these topics many times, but related to this particular question. So let me read the question more, the the full-blown question, and then address it further. Is it okay to date and establish a home before fully dealing with my own self-esteem and dependency issues? I read the transcript of your radio talk entitled Sexually or in- Sexuality or Intimacy. I've recently discovered the concept of unconditional love, beginning with the self. There's work in progress for me to feel that I can love myself and others for who they are, regardless of our decisions, our actions, and our perspectives. The question is this. Would it be okay to date and establish a home before fully, fully dealing with my own codependency? Would it be advisable to ensure that I can love myself absolutely without needing to impress others or seek their approval? This is a key aspect of being able to relate without defenses. I do feel quite able to relate to people and my defenses are pretty loose. I just anticipate a state where all the family of origin, where all the family of origin trauma is healed and I can rely on myself for love. When I love myself enough, I'll be certain to choose a wife who has ample self-love, i.e. she won't be codependent or narcissistic. On the other side of the coin, I'm looking for a relationship. 
I'm looking for intimacy, and my sexuality continues to look for an outlet. It is becoming hard, and with legitimate outlets, sexuality tries to find satisfaction in other areas. It is a battle I am winning with the help of a therapist. Intimacy and sexual expression are both looking for fulfillment. Embarking on the journey, journey will now, now will satisfy both, but both, more, more work on self will improve intimacy. Do I establish a relationship now and continue to work on unconditional love simultaneously? Or do I get an unconditional love down pat, then address sexuality? Well, the short answer is the first. You establish a relationship and you continue to work on unconditional love simultaneously. And let me explain my reasoning and based obviously on letters, sikhs, and of course Mahmurim and the Rebbe's general approach. It's not healthy and not good for a person to be alone. This is both for men and women, even though it says that I'm man, for different reasons, it applies to everybody. So the idea of a relationship is part of the way a healthy human being is. On the other hand, we're not perfect human beings. We're going to wait to become perfect before we have relationships. Unfortunately, no one would ever have a relationship. Part of having a relationship is the relationship itself helps you become a better person because you care about the other person, you're giving, you have a little humility, they care about you, and there's a give and take, and there's a partnership going on. Now, obviously, if a person is extremely unhealthy in a particular area, even then, they should look for a relationship and work on that. If it's something that they're at a point where a doctor or a therapist or a professional says, you cannot have a relationship because you are destructive to the other person, that, of course, is an extreme situation that has to be addressed, and maybe then you have to work on something before you bring someone else into your life and you don't want to hurt them. But very often, low self-esteem or self-esteem issues cause us to exaggerate and to the point we think, no, I can't be in any relationship with anyone because I may hurt somebody. Or the other extreme, you completely minimize it and you turn whatever is good for me and I don't really care about the other person. That is why it's so vital when it comes to relationships which are basically emotional that we have to have objective advice. And here again, how can one advise without knowing the exact situations? But the general answer is no, you do not. It is okay to date and establish home and marry even if you're still dealing with self-esteem. I know people their entire life they're going to deal with their self-esteem. Who doesn't? Questions to the extent and as I said, a healthy relationship, a healthy marriage with a good person will help you also grow in that area. Unfortunately, very many of us think, or some of us think, that because I'm not really good at my self-esteem, I may hurt my family. Well, our answer to that is, is again, unless there's an extreme situation where a professional says you need to address it, it's one thing. But in general, that has to be brought to the table. You address it. You put it on the table. You don't ignore it. And very often, in a healthy, growing relationship, especially with good guidance, especially if you hit a, if you hit a, a, a bump, someone guides you through it, you, that itself will heal and become better, at least, through the process of marriage, of a healthy marriage and relationship. In general, a relationship also, as you suggest, preempts many other things. Because if you're going to wait... There'll be other challenges, whether it'll be sexual challenges, or as you put it, or other challenges. Then you're just creating yourself a bigger hole to deal with, a bigger group, as they say, a bigger pit to have to fill. 
So relationship has so many other factors that it adds to us. It's not just the self-esteem issue. There's other areas that it gives you strength. So once you have strength in one area, it spills over and gives you strength in other areas. Now, how does one build self-esteem? Well, I discussed that in those episodes that I referred to. Above all, you have to remember, it is because the virtue of our birth, that God, birth is God saying you matter. Hashem gave you a neshama. And you say every day, neshama shenesata bi tahedehi. Neshama you've given me is pure. That, by that virtue of that neshama is what really gives us value. And there we need work. Work can be including contemplation, learning chassidus about your neshama, concentrating emotionally when you say the, the, the tefillah, moedani lefanecha in the morning and then afterwards neshama shenesata bi. Think what does it mean? Actualize that tahedehi in your life. Do things. Do things, that, do things that empower that soul. The list goes on, but that's not really the question here. That, those are things that can help strengthen and embolden and reinforce and validate and fan the flames of your inner neshamas, inner inherent self-esteem within your soul. So once we know that the neshama has that, it means you don't have to go buy it somewhere or get it somewhere, acquire it somewhere, then it's a matter of working on it. So you work on that simultaneous, you work on a relationship, which also satisfies and feeds your self-esteem because a person who cares about you gives you, gives you confidence. You have a, an endorsement, so to speak, a type of validation by another person who cares about you and you care about them. Don't underestimate that factor as well. At the same time, you don't want it to be a codependency, as you write. You're not just relying that that person is going to give you value. Some people think that they'll get married, and the person will love me, then, I'm gonna, then I'll be really happy. It'll be like my mother loving me. We have to love ourselves. We cannot just be completely dependent on someone else. But it goes hand in hand. Like Hahilal said, you need to do something on your own end <coughs> Excuse me, to love yourself and find your own inner confidence, the neshama part. And you always need someone else to help support that as well. And it's a, it's a, it's a reciprocal back and forth between the two, the I the self, the value of self, and the other helping you bolster your spirit and your confidence as you bolster theirs. Okay, next question. Chatas Neurim. How can I control the unspoken urge? About eight years ago, I overcame a personal challenge of Chatas Neurim. I used to intentionally do that ever since then. I have never done it intentionally even though occasionally it happens by itself. Recently, I started slipping again and resuming it, doing it intentionally. How can I overcome this? So these questions, interestingly, we covered long, long ago in the beginnings of when we started My Life Chassidah Supply because of its prevalent challenge, young men's lives, men's lives in general. So let me refer you to the episodes when I spoke about it, episodes four, six, seven, and nine. Literally the earliest, earliest episodes. I went back to look there. So I think I've said everything I could say on the topic. Well, I can't say everything. Everything, that's a strong statement. But I said a lot what you can say on this topic. The Rebbe's directives to many Bachrim on this. And uh, especially Hesach Hadad's idea of putting your mind elsewhere. The busier you are in good things, the less temptations, the less void, vacuum, and boredom is there to allow for this to enter. It's a strong taiva. It's a strong temptation, no one is denying it, and especially once one has tasted from the forbidden fruit. But that doesn't mean we don't have control of Meich Shalat and the power of Hesach Hadas. 
So I spoke about it then. I would suggest to the questioner, please listen to those episodes. Again, four, six, seven, and nine. If there's something that I said there that you think can be embellished upon, you want more elaboration, or some question I may not have answered, I would be happy to do so. But I don't think it's necessary for me to go and just repeat what I said then when it's all there. It's the same person speaking. It's just recorded from a few years ago. And, uh, okay. But since the questions come in, once in a while we get similar questions, I do bring them up and read them because I want to address everybody's questions. But at times I will refer to previous episodes, especially if it's exactly a question that I already addressed. The follow-up we did by the oil, we did about the Rebbe's answering. There were two other follow-ups which I'd like to do. Then I'll do the Chassidus question, the essays. Okay. The follow-up was a very short follow-up about my teenage friends are drowning. What, what can we do? This was back to two episodes 213, 214, and 215, especially the first 213 and 214. This was a rather lengthy discussion with many, many comments and I just want to tie it up because a few more comments came in. Well, I'll read what this person writes even though I don't agree with it. And that is that typical one person writes. A while passed since that caring teenager wrote the article and no, not one school took her seriously. Instead of doing something, heads of the schools are just looking for their paycheck and summer vacation. So sad. I cannot agree with you because I personally know some schools and definitely some teachers have taken it very much to heart. Some have taken it to heart already before, but as some have said, they don't always know what to do. So I don't think it's, I think it's being harsh, too harsh to just suggest that no, everyone's ignoring it. I cannot say everyone's doing something. So I read your comment because I think some people are very frustrated because they don't see real action happening in addressing some of the critical issues facing our youth. Uh, but, you know what, let me just say this as uh, someone a little more seasoned. I, I share the frustration, but we have to all be, try to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. To just complain and just say this one's not doing, that one's not doing, is not necessarily a healthy approach, to put it mildly. We have to all find ways to motivate. At times, yes, we have to cry out and say what's going on, but at the same time, let's try to find ways. So I suggest to you, if you feel so frustrated, why don't you hook up with someone or two people, say what can we do, there's always something that can be done. There's no such thing as impossible to doing something. Okay, another person writes, a huge fan. I'm a bocher, a huge fan of Rabbi Jacobson. That says things clearly and addresses a variety of issues from the Hasidic's point of view. Maybe they should bring him down to speaking yeshivas. Unfortunately, a lot of the mishpim don't, today don't relate to the day-to-day struggles that bocherim have. Well, thank you for your um, uh, endorsement, for your uh, support. And, um, and again, I find that in different yeshivas, there's different attitudes. Yes, there are places that need a lot of improvement. Some need less improvement. I mean, everyone needs some improvement, but some, need, some are doing well and trying their best. But we all can grow in this area until every bachar, and every girl for that matter, every student is not addressed with their issues, whatever they may be, we still have work to be done. So we're all in agreement in that part. And I thank you again. And with that, let us deal with one more follow-up, how to deal with OCD. This was in episode 213 and 214. So here was another letter that came in, which I am going to read and address. This will be the follow-up. Okay. The letter goes like this. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I would like to help the woman with the OCD issues you discussed, which you spoke about in the last few weeks. 
And on the advice you and or, or others give her, that she should get professional help. Before I give my advice, I would like to share with you what I think of therapists and my experience with therapists and psychologists. Oh, this sounds juicy. That's my own uh, comment. I've been in and out of therapy for nearly 20 years. I know that sounds like a long time, and indeed it is. Let me be honest with you. It was a total... <laughs> I don't mean to smile, but it's just the way the person puts it here. Let me be honest with you. It was a total waste of time for my part. Let me explain. I never heard anything smart or wise from these people. They just sit there and let you complain. But from my experience, it doesn't help a thing. And I started bottom-up. That means the therapists that work for clinics that don't charge you anything. Insurance pays for it. To the top of the therapists that charge from $100 to $200 an hour. But believe me, they're all the same. They didn't help me, but one thing I know for sure. I definitely helped them buy breakfast and toilet paper. I know they have helped some people as the, toast, as the testimonies at the mental health event a couple of weeks ago, but I'm just sharing my experience. I'm sorry for being bitter, but I am. What can I do? So what advice can I give this woman if therapists don't help, in my opinion? Here's my advice. What helped me overcome OCD, most of it, was by reading or rather studying self-help books for OCD, which teach cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. A very good book is titled Getting Control by Lee Baer. I believe he is a Harvard professor. The book has scales and charts and questionnaires which measure the strength of the OCD and teaches you how to apply the CBT therapy to your specific OCD behavior. I'll just say what is CBT therapy in a nutshell. If, for example, someone checks the locks 20 times before going to sleep at night, they have, they have to abstain from checking the locks and to bring it down to checking once will be too overwhelming. So they can't start by checking only 19 times, then 18, etc., until they bring it down to checking once. I'm sorry. So they can start by checking only 19 times, then going down to 18 until they bring it down to checking once. Can't just jump to one. And what CBT basically accomplishes is that it teaches your brain that you don't have to do these things and religious OCD is basically the same as regular OCD. The OCD must just manifest itself in different ways. And as far as the self-help books for the OCD, you can just Google it and you'll get dozens of books. I just want to add one more thing. I believe that OCD usually comes with other disorders as depression, etc. And I think the OCD behavior serves as a release for the depression. So my point basically is this. If this woman is going through depression or stress by addressing it, it might help the OCD, as you mentioned in your last show. Hobbies are very important, and especially playing a musical instrument speaks to the emotions to the soul. And one more point I want to make, the most important thing we can do for people suffering from emotional distress is to give them support. There's nothing like support from family and friends, and that can be even through a phone call or an email. They should just know that you're there for them. One more thing. If the husband is asking you if he should divorce his wife, he probably mentioned it to her as well, and that's not very helpful. It'll probably just up her anxiety. Thanks for all you do, Hatzlach Araba. I hope this will be helpful. Well, I thank you for being blunt, and I really apologize for smiling because, frankly, I think there are therapists that are very good. I think there are many that are not, and also different therapists for different people. Some people may need more than therapy and more less than therapy as you, as you found a certain direction and I thank you very much for your comments. I happen to agree with a lot of what you said 
And obviously, again, no one size fits all, but these are good suggestions. And you do whatever it takes. There's books, there are ideas, and you apply yourself. I've seen many times therapy doesn't work for someone. There are other things that do. In this case, for example, reading a book may sound strange that it should work, but sometimes it gives you a, a, a resonating suggestion. And one book may do it, another book may not do it for you. But in this area, you try, you attack it from every possible angle. So I thank you for adding to the conversation and the discussion. And I'm sure there's more to say, but thank you for that. Okay. Chassidah's question. Uh, well, one more thing in that regard. So therefore, never give up. If one thing is not working, that does not mean other things can't work. Keep trying. Trying this book, that book, different therapists, different approaches. And that's the way people solve issues. They do not give up. And do not feel they're forever a victim to their OCD or depression or anxiety or other forces that are imposing themselves on our psyches and our behavior. Chassidus question. So often the Chassidus question we focus is on an actual maimer or an idea in Chassidus. This question is on the topic of energy, matter and energy. Is energy spiritual or physical? It says in Chassidus that matter is a creation, yesh ma'ayin, ex nilo, from nothing. Meaning from, some, from substance, from beyond, something that is beyond substance, above substance. And it couldn't evolve from spirit. But since matter is energy, can't we say that the energy evolved from nucleus? So, very good question. In other words, and I'll break the question into several parts. Yeshmayin means that as much as Ruchnis will evolve, the Ilmas al it will never become a Yesh. You can be Mitzamtsim, you can diminish the Ruchnis, and it can become less Ruchnis, and less, uh, weaker Ruchnis, a lower level of it. But to make a Yesh, you need Hulavade Bekechevi you need Atmus to actually say, here is going to be now a Yesh. Because a Yesh is not an extension of the Ayin, it's a leap. So, for example, if you want Mayim, you take, let's take you have that Pacific Ocean. You have a tremendous reservoir of water and you want to get it into a cup. The way you do it is you diminish, you diminish, you diminish. You channel it, the reservoir, into rivers, into pipes, to mains, to lower, smaller pipes. The pipes run into a house, they run to your faucet, and now you get a trickle of water. But that's all within the same paradigm. It's water. If you take Ruchnis, Elam Esel Yenim, Eidein Sof, so there's no room for anything that exists. So the tzimtzum conceals it all. Then comes the trickle, comes the kav. A thin ray, a thin thread of energy, of light and energy. That can be diminished. That can fit into kalim. That as long as it's all ruchnis. How do you get a yesh nivra, a yesh something that feels that it doesn't have any cause, where does the yesh come from? The substance, the actual substance. Not just the chayas and the key inside, a, inside the, let's say, light, yihir, or the chayas and the key inside the rakia, rakia, or the chayas and the key, the divine energy inside vegetation. We're not talking about the divine energy, we're talking about the actual vegetation, the keli, the body. So you can take a soul and say the soul has to be mitzumtum, you have to conceal it, you have to channel it, you have to direct it and guide it into the body. But the body itself, the soul doesn't create. That needs a particular kayach atzmos. That's the way Chassidus explains yesh ma'ayin. That's why we call it yesh ma'ayin. Why don't you call it ol, cause and effect? Because the ayin will never become a yesh. So the ayin can be diminished to fit into a yesh, but something has to create that substance. And Chassidus talks, that's why Sev of Kalaman creates the chaymer, and Mamala Kalaman creates the tzura, the chayas that goes into it. Sometimes it says the opposite. 
But the point being is that that uh, that Ruchnis does not become Gashmis. As much as Ruchnis will be diminished, it will never become Gashmis. That's Yeshmayin. So the questioner is asking like this. Since matter is energy, we know today that physical matter can be turned into energy. E equals mc squared. And what's energy? Matter, you can take, for example, a piece of wood, you burn in a fire, it becomes fuel, energy. So why can't we say energy becomes matter? Which brings us to the question, is energy ruchnius? That's what he's asking, is energy spiritual or physical? Very good question. So my answer would be as follows. I've not seen this specifically, but this seems to be the logical way to think about it. Ruchnius, when we say ruchnius dika energy, divine energy, air, the word for it is air, ain't sof. Or air, air mamala, air aliki. Is that what we would call energy like electricity? The answer is no, of course not. It has similarity. For example, you could say what electricity is to a light bulb, what electricity is to an appliance. You can say the air aliki is to the keli that it goes in, the air chesed into the air, into the clay chesed. The air hariya, the power of vision into the eye. The air hashmiya, the power and energy of, of hearing in the air. That is similar to air aliki in a, into, into, uh, into a kli aliki. But to say that's exactly the same thing, that the energy of this world, the energy that is generated from matter, when we split an atom, fission or fusion, and you create a tremendous amount of nuclear energy. Is that ruchnis? That's not ruchnis. That's part of Elam Haza. However, in Elam Haza, Gebeshtemeda, that we also have example of something that is ruchnis, so to speak. Not that it's ruchni, ruchni. Lefi'erah geshem, it's ruach, but it's called spirit. Therefore, we have an example for the same thing of the body and the soul. Or for Aaron Kli in the Elamis Ruchnim. So that's why you cannot say that just because physical matter can be turned into energy and energy can be turned into physical matter, which we see all the time. You boil water, water has substance, it becomes gas, and gas is energy. Water is also energy. The rush of water can create tremendous amount of electricity and energy. When you freeze water, it becomes ice, and this can be reversed many times. But that's all Gashmi. That's not saying yesh ma'ayin. When gas becomes water, because you congeal it, or you cool it, or when any type of any energy energizes something, it becomes something that matter, that's not yesh ma'ayin. The yesh is coming from ayin. It's, it's ruchni coming Gashmi, but not ruchni elekui. You'd say, it's, you'd say physical energy is becoming physical matter. But energy is a good example for Ruchnius, and Ruchnius is a good example for Elokus. That's why the answer is answer. The answer is that therefore it's not phys- energy, when we say physical energy or energy in the physical world, is not Hainu Hach to say Eidelaki. Because physical energy is also a Yesh. It just, in this world itself, energy is, less, is more subtle Yesh than uh, matter. But it's just another form of matter, and matter is another form of energy. So when we take, for example, a Gashmizdika thing, we say we make it a Hefzer Shalgdusha, through doing a mitzvah with an object. You take a piece of hide of an animal, an animal hide. You turn it into cloth, into parchment, for stam, for to say, for tailored fill and mezuzahs. What are you doing? So the example we give is we're taking matter and turning it into energy. 
But what you're really doing is you're taking matter and turning it into divine, the, the divine energy. It's a chavcha shagdusha. It's not just giving off energy. A hide has energy in it. You burn it in a fire, you see there's energy. You're talking a chavcha shagdusha. And that is the, the distinction. So to go from, <clears throat> as I said, yesh and yesh is also the energy needs a creation of a yesh, which also needs a hulavade v'yecholte to create even the physical energy of this world. But at the same time, it's an example that we have in this world of within this physical world itself, there's more subtle, there's less subtle, there's matter, there's energy, and even spirit, you can call it. Okay, now three essays. We do the three essays as we do every year, every week, sorry. This year's fourth annual 2018 My Life Chassidus Applied Essay Contest. The first one is How to Be a Warrior, Not a Warrior. How to be a warrior, not a warrior, by Devorah Black, age 19, San Antonio, Texas. Beishana in Svas, where she studied. So she writes, if I would try to contain the contents of this entire essay into two sentences, it would be the following. One, you have power to create your own reality. The resolution... One, you have power to create your own reality... Two, the resolution to all of your challenges, hardships, and uncertainties lies ent- entirely in your hands. Since that sounds like a blasphemy and nonsense all rolled into one, I'll expound a little further. You might be thinking that the above statement is saying that you have the solution to all your problems. In truth, your control of your life lies in your complete surrender to the one, capital one, who's actually running the show. Wait a second, control, surrender? How, these two, how did these two words find themselves in the same sentence? She goes on a very creative, as you see, style to writing about the difference between Amuna and Betochen, the inner workings of Betochen and trust, <clears throat> and its application. And yes, comes away with an implementation of step one, letting go. Two, realizing that God is your father. Three, do the math. If Hashem is in control, plus he wants to give you revealed good, all you need to do is access this revealed good. And finally, four, step four, thinking positively. Well done, essay. I'm sorry, one second, I, I skipped. Step five, believe what you think. Step six, speak positively. Step seven, take positive action. And step eight, acknowledge the revealed good that Hashem is constantly bestowing upon you. Well done, essay. It's ideas that many of us may be familiar with, but there are definitely a few angles here that I found to be very refreshing and in- intriguing and, uh, the, and delivers what it promises, which is above all the best type of essay. Thank you so much for that. Essay number two for this week is Finding a Geula Life of Bliss and Joy in a Place Called Golos by Levi Ginsberg, age 22, Brooklyn, New York. Tem Chitmim Lebavich, Poconos. This is uh, actually a much longer essay than usual. A good 20-page essay, which is beyond really the limits and parameters of essays, but it's still a very good essay. In this essay... Levi wants to explain, I would like to analyze the concept of das, knowledge, as explained in Chabad Chassidic philosophy, and how through developing the quality of das, one can achieve a life of utter bliss and tranquility, free of any feelings of anxiety, depression, helplessness, and insecurity. Concepts that we'll come across in this essay also include Gili Eirein Sof, Golos versus Geula, Shem Alekim versus Shem Avaya, and gives the sources for all of this. Dasso also begins with a very interesting personal story, which I found to be a very good tool to bring the point across, and then goes into a, a rather comprehensive analysis of the basis of the Muna, especially according to Chabad Chassidus, 
the life of a Jew, a confusing life of paradoxes, but what we believe, that Hashem is the only power, Hashem empowers me, and that there's a purpose that I can do this the here and now. And goes on, quite well structured, and easy, easy read, I just said a little long, but uh, goes through the entire structure with Chachma bin Adas, all the way to issues of what he calls Das Disconnect Disorder, and the importance of Das in the whole process, and how you cure it. I'm just looking through quickly. Um, well, the rest, I, I would suggest reading it. As I said, it is well done. And yet another great demonstration of what people are doing in applying chassidus to their lives. And I just definitely took a lot of work, a lot of investment here, and I want to thank you for that. Because there's nothing greater in your chutzah minasecha chutzah than taking minasecha and applying it to chutzah, which is what the meaning of your chutzah minasecha chutzah is. And finally, essay number three for this week, Rectifying Chaotic Marriages. Yanison Johnson, age 39, Melbourne, Australia. Kalo Menachem Labavitch in Melbourne. Melbourne. The Hasidist model for achieving deeply connected and lasting marriages. And uses basically, he says, in this essay, I would like to present a Hasidist based model that includes a perspective on relationships and a set of skills that can both be applied by spouses to foster enduring and harmonious relationships. The model is based on an analysis of the two world orders discussed in Hasidus, the world of Tayu, chaos, and the world of Tikkun, rectification. And uses these two worlds as a, an excellent model of understanding healthy versus chaotic marriages, as the name suggests. Well done, Agel. Very good reading. And definitely can help, especially as he structures Tayu in the separate line, a line and Tikkun is the, is the interconnectivity, what we call Hiskalus, Najos Hiskalkus. And this essay, as well as all the other essays, the new ones can, uh, can be seen, meaningfullife.com slash mylife, or if you subscribe to our weekly newsletter, we shall send you the new essays as they are posted. Thank you for these essays. Thank you for listening. This has been My Life, Citizen Applied, episode 217. We depend on your support, so please support us by going to meaningfullife.com slash sponsorship. And we are here every Sunday. We'll be here Sunday, next Sunday, Mitzvah Hashem. 8 to 9 p.m. Thank you very much. Everyone have a very blessed week. And of course, next week we'll be addressing Yud Beis Yud Gimel Tamuz. should be a, a, a blessing, blessed week and a week of Geula Amitiz Vashlema through the pulas that we all do of your Futsu Menesecha Chutzah. Thank you.